You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. The First Amendment promises that Congress will make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. America is a pluralistic place. There are many different religions being practiced or exercised at any given time in our nation. Some of these religious practices are familiar to most of us. They fit in, so to speak. But what happens when people catch wind of a religion that's outside of the mainstream, one that has unusual practices, like animal sacrifice? Today's episode deals with one such case, where a Santeria priest was told he could not perform the ritual sacrifice of animals, leaving him no choice but to go to court. Okay, I just want to jump right into this case. It was decided in 2009, over a decade ago, but it remains relevant. Why? Because it really clarifies whom religious liberty laws protect most in our country. Of course, the First Amendment promises religious liberty for all. And laws like RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, do too, including those who follow the more mainstream or familiar faiths. But minority faiths are the ones who benefit the most from religious liberty laws. Empirical studies have found that those following minority religions are actually overrepresented when it comes to RIFRA lawsuits, for example. This case started in 2006, when the city of Ules, Texas, told Jose Merced that he could no longer practice one part of his religion, animal sacrifice. Jose Merced was our, our client in this case. That's Eric Rosbach, vice president and senior counsel at Beckett. His religion is uh, Santeria, which is originated in Cuba, actually, and has a lot of influences from African traditional religion as well as Catholicism. Many people call it a syncretic religion. Syncretic means that it takes elements from other religions and uh, combines them, if you will, into a single form of religion. So it, it really formed in Cuba, but it was the religion of many of the slaves in Cuba who had been brought over by the Spanish Empire from West Africa. Cuba was under Spanish rule in the 16th century when West Africans were captured as slaves and brought to Cuba. The official Spanish religion was Catholicism, and that was the only religion legally permitted by the colonial government in Cuba. This didn't mean that African religious practices just disappeared, but they went underground, were given different names, and they came to reflect a mix of cultures over time. So many of the words in the religion are actually of West African derivation. So for example, Orisha. Those deities, the African deities, were worshipped by the slaves in Cuba, but then there was a sort of mixture with uh, the Catholic practice of veneration of saints. So often an Orisha within the original African religion might be identified with a particular saint within Catholicism. This tendency to align the African faith with the Catholic faith and call it Santeria, it's really more of a labeling mechanism than anything else. We talked to Ernesto Pichardo, a Santeria priest in Florida. Ernesto explained that his faith, which he calls Lukumi, is actually not like Catholicism at all. Lukumi refers to an Afro-Cuban group of Yoruba ancestry. 
if we go to Latin American countries other than Cuba, if we go to other Latin American countries and we say Santeria or Santero, they're going to think of Catholicism as being the primary belief system of the individual with somewhat secondary influences. And those are usually spiritual, coming from spiritism or indigenous beliefs. The person, the worshiper blends both things. Then those are called santeros and, and that person practices santeria. Well, that's not what we have in Cuba. The Cuban side of it fundamentally is the African influences. Ernesto has been a visiting professor at various colleges using these classes to educate people about his religious practice. And he has the experience to back up that instruction. As a teenager, Ernesto entered into the Lukumi priesthood. So we believe in one God, one source. One of the praise names or the main praise name that's used is uh, Olo Dumare, which is in Yoruba language. That translates to owner of everlasting abundance. We believe that there is a pantheon of deities which emanate from that single source, Olodumare. From them, uh, there is a large group of deities that are divided in uh, more or less uh, closer to us, the humans, uh, that rule everything that happens pretty much here on Earth. And, they, and those are all associated with our natural environment. Something important to understand about the Lukumi, or Santeria, faith is that it doesn't involve a house of worship. The high priests and their communities worship in their own homes. We don't have a church where there's only one set of sacred icons there and the whole congregation goes to it. Each person receives their own consecrated deity in that similar pot, right? They're, they're Orisha. Again, Orishas are deities in the Santeria religion ranked under a supreme god. It's personalized to that person that's receiving it. They take it home. And so they're going to have designated a sacred space within the home where those consecrated objects will reside. And then that room or what have you is considered sacred space. Lukumi or Santeria religious practice looks like, well, many things, many rituals. They generally revolve around making offerings to the Orishas. A practitioner will often go to a priest like Ernesto for divination. Our divination system is our sacred uh, scripture. Uh, when people come in for a consultation, the divination is performed. You, know, you cast your instruments, in, uh, like in the case that what I use, which is the, one of the two official instruments, I use 16 cowrie shells. Based on uh, the casting of that and the sequence of, of the combinations that appear, that points to a particular chapter or subchapter in the divination book. And then there are many paths, many directions that can appear. Two basic categories, you know, you're either in the fortune or in the misfortune categories. It's either or. And there are many possibilities 
along the lines of the fortune category or the misfortune category. So what I'm saying is that the diviner does not have the authority to say, uh, you know, we need to sacrifice a chicken for you. Okay, that has to be prescribed and mandated by divination. So it's not a human decision. It's not viewed as a, as a human decision. After a complicated and methodological divination, the diviner will reveal the action that must be done. Usually this is an offering to an orisha. It can be a libation. It can be a, an herbal bath. It can just be lighting a candle and praying. It can be an observance of... Uh, uh, let's say, uh, wearing uh, white clothes for, for a few days. It can be, uh, you know, refraining from certain activities that you normally would do for a number of days. Sometimes the offering involves animal sacrifice. And that's where the Beckett case really started. Jose Merced, Beckett's client, grew up in Puerto Rico, where he encountered Santeria. Like Ernesto, Jose Merced is a Santeria priest. And as a priest, one of his jobs within the religion is to carry out ceremonies. There were many different rituals that he would undertake, some of which do not involve animals or animal sacrifice. But the more serious or more elaborate ceremonies ended up having animal sacrifice, and perhaps the most Serious one was the ordination ceremony where someone would become a new oba or priest in the religion. And if memory serves, that required something like 21 animals to be sacrificed of different sorts. And this would be goats, chickens, a turtle was involved. There's a lot of process involved in this kind of ritual. You know, he'd schedule the, the ceremony. He would obtain the animals usually about a day beforehand from a farm or something along those lines. They, they would be live animals. And then he would have them in his yard or garage being fed and, and taken care of until the time of the sacrifice. And then the next day they would have the actual sacrifice. As I mentioned, they would then use the meat from the animals that had been sacrificed or slaughtered to have a, a meal, a festive meal, if you will. And then the leftover parts of the animal, the parts that were not consumed as part of the feast, would be carefully wrapped up and sealed off and then uh, disposed of. In some times and places, no one would have blinked an eye at this type of religious practice. Obviously, in, in, for thousands of years, many different religions have had animal sacrifice of one form or another. It happens within Islam, for example. Uh, every Eid, there is usually a, a goat or sheep sacrificed uh, as part of the religion. That's very common. Uh, there's also, in some forms of Hinduism, actually, there's some animal sacrifice, particularly in Nepal. And if you look back in history, obviously the Jewish religion, as described in the Torah, requires animal sacrifice at the temple. That's currently not undergoing because there is no temple, so there is no temple sacrifice. But 
that is, it's something common to different religions. But in 2006, in Euless, Texas... It's not very common in the main religions in the United States, which I think is really the reason that Mr. Merced ended up with the legal problems that he had. This particular Santeria practice has become kind of the thing people know about the religion. But Ernesto wanted to make clear that Santeria divination certainly does not always lead to animal sacrifice. One of the main reasons why we have to do that is, in certain cases, we could call it uh, an exchange ritual, uh, which is the person is being afflicted by some physical harm or spiritual harm, and it raises to the level where we cannot uh, heal the individual by any other means, and then we only have that one avenue to try to assist the human. And then that's when the sacrifice takes place. But the sacrifices is, is to us is the last thing that we engage. Uh, you know, we believe that every animal has a soul. As humans, we don't believe that we have the, the authority to take the life of the animal. That we ha- it has to be strictly done under the approval and mandate of the God. And the methodology is very strict and it has to be followed. It can't be, you can't start, you know, jumping from one thing to the next. There's a, there's a flow there that you have to follow. Uh, you know, the last thing that we want to do is have to engage in animal sacrifice, you know, um, which is important for people to understand. You know, it's not like we have a church and every, you know, every Sunday uh, we have congregants in there and everybody's going around killing goats. That's not the case. Still, the animal sacrifice is an important part of Santeria. And the city Ernesto lived in in Florida, Hialeah, outlawed animal sacrifice. This led Ernesto's church to a Supreme Court case in the early 1990s. When the facts all came to light, it was obvious that the city had intentionally targeted the Santeria practice, and the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in Ernesto's favor. And yet, over a decade and a half later, Jose Merced, like Ernesto, found himself defending Santeria practices in court. Jose Merced had been practicing his religion, including performing ritual animal sacrifices, for about 16 years before someone decided to file a complaint against him. An anonymous complaint was made to the Euless Police Department that animal killing was occurring at this house. And the police arrived and asked him about it, and he said, well, I've been doing this for a long time. I didn't know there was any problem with it. And they said, well, you actually need a permit to do that. So you need to get a permit before you do it again. So being someone who is not interested in having a problem with the local authorities, Mr. Merced went down to Eula City Hall and asked for the permit. At the city hall, he was informed that there is no such permit and If he continued engaging in his religious practice, they would prosecute him for violating the city's rules about animal slaughter within city limits. 
So then, at that point, he realized that if he wanted to continue doing sacrifices the way he had been and to actually operate and have his community, local temple of Santeria, operate, he would need to uh, seek legal recourse. So he uh, engaged a lawyer and brought a lawsuit alleging a number of different claims. Uh, the mo main ones that ended up being important were uh, a claim under the First Amendment's Free Exercise Clause and another one uh, under the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The First Amendment says the government can't prohibit the free exercise of religion. Texas's Religious Freedom Restoration Act is similar to the federal RIFRA, which says the courts must apply a certain standard to free exercise claims. The way the RIFRA laws work is that once the plaintiff has shown the substantial burden on his religious exercise, then the government has the duty to show in response that there's a compelling governmental interest and that it's using the least restrictive means of the religious exercise to further that interest. And RIFRA is a really important statute, especially in a diverse nation like the United States. You know, we are not going to be a sort of monolithic society when it comes to religion. We've got almost every religion that exists in the world has some presence in the United States of America. And we aren't going to be able to get along if the basis of getting along is suppressing groups that the government, whatever government it is, doesn't like. So we really need to try to get along. And statutes like RIFRA, which are focused on providing narrow, specific, case-specific accommodations, are a form of getting along in an incredibly pluralistic society. Jose was saying, look, my religion requires that I make these animal sacrifices. I must do it in my home, which is my sacred space and place of worship. I've been doing this for 16 years without issue, and now the city says its rules prohibit me from doing it. That's a substantial burden on my religious exercise. He brought the case. The judge decided some issues on the papers, but then set a bench trial. It was a remarkably short uh, trial before Judge John McBride. It was only three hours long, and the same day, uh, Judge McBride issued findings of fact and conclusions of law on the record, so he just stated them from the bench and issued a one-page order saying, see what I said at trial, and dismissed all of his claims. This was a really odd way to treat a First Amendment case. It's not a normal way to decide an issue of clear constitutional import. One doesn't normally have such a short trial, and, and the three hours was something that, that Judge McBride had set beforehand, not something that was just everybody got done with what they were doing. He said, I'm gonna do this trial in three hours. So from the perspective of Mr. Merced, and certainly from my perspective, it did feel a bit like railroading. Judge McBride ruled completely against Mr. Merced and did it on the record. The other thing that's odd about it is to decide a case about significant constitutional issues and issue the ruling from the bench as opposed to 
writing an opinion where the reasons could be spelled out and, and understood. Part of the reason that judges in our system do long written opinions is so that, first of all, so that litigants can know what the law is. It's a lot easier to read a written opinion and figure out what the law is than to go and look at some transcript somewhere of, of what a judge said in a case. But it also makes it easier for higher courts to review these issues. So you can understand a judge ruling from the bench if it was something about a, a traffic ticket or something like that. But in an issue where the First Amendment of the United States is at stake, the ability of a religious community to exist in a particular jurisdiction, those are pretty weighty issues, and it's very unusual that there was no written opinion about that. It was at this point that Beckett stepped in. We appealed the case to the Fifth Circuit, which is the federal courts of appeals for cases that originate in Texas. And what was the city's argument this whole time? Great question. One, the city was arguing that, well, actually, prohibiting Jose Merced from practicing animal sacrifice in his home was not burdening his religion at all. Their argument was, it doesn't hurt your, your faith or you don't have substantial burden because you can do it somewhere else. That's generally speaking, not been a good argument in court when you talk about civil rights. Civil rights aren't really that great if you can only exercise them in a few places. It's important for him to be doing this at his home. It's not something that's sort of fungible and you go different places. It's supposed to be sort of a community center, home and hearth. So that that aspect of it is important in Santeria. I I'm not qualified to tell you exactly how it works within the religion, but it is important that it's, it's done at home. And that was typical for a lot of older polytheistic religions. There is often a connection to the hearth. And you even see this in Roman religion. There is the idea of Vesta, who is the goddess of the hearth. And if you ever heard of the Vestal Virgins in Roman history, that same thing. So this idea that the hearth itself was, and the, the center of the home was a, a place of worship, not just somewhere out there. The city also argued that it needed to stop Jose Merced's animal sacrifice in the name of public safety and preventing animal cruelty. But that didn't really hold water either. Clearly, Euless has an interest in protecting the public health. But the problem Euless had with its argument on that front was that it allowed all other, a number of other kinds of animal killing and disposal of animal remains in ways that were much worse for the public health. So one example that came up in the briefing and at oral argument is something common in Texas, which is there's a lot of people who go and hunt deer. Well, in, in Texas and in Euless, you could go and have a deer in the back of your pickup truck that you had hunted elsewhere, bring back, and you could field dress the deer in your, your string them up, field dress it in your driveway, let all the blood, etc., run into the sewer system, and Euless wouldn't say word one about it. So clearly, the public safety argument had no teeth. But neither did the city's other argument that they needed to prohibit the Santeria ritual in order to prevent animal cruelty. 
the method of the sacrifice or the method of the killing of the animal is identical to uh, a form of uh, animal killing that has been defined as humane by uh, federal statute. So for example, any kosher slaughterhouse or halal slaughterhouse, of which there are many in this country, and which are required for the for the meat to be kosher or to be halal under the uh, Jewish or Muslim religions respectively, they must kill the animal using uh, severing of the carotid artery. That That's a requirement. And so that's been defined as humane under U.S. law and that's exactly how Mr. Merced was doing it. From Eric's perspective, it seemed pretty clear that the city was trying to find a reason to stop Jose Merced's religious practice. The idea that Euless was sort of really concerned about these issues didn't make any sense when you looked at the reality. It's just that deer hunting is a much more familiar and accepted cultural practice in Texas than Santeria sacrifice. And, of course, in Santeria, they were not letting the blood and guts go into the sewer system. They were carefully uh, using the different uh, consumable or edible parts of the uh, animals that had been sacrificed uh, for their feast, and then the leftovers were carefully packaged and put into a dumpster that it was used by restaurants and the like. And of course, with respect to disposal of animal parts, restaurants dispose of leftover animal parts constantly, as they do in Euless. Uh, and there's nothing special about what Mr. Merced was doing uh, or his temple. They were, in, in fact, they were much more careful about being sanitary than I would argue your average restaurant might be. So Douglas Laycock, the professor who had brought us into this, and the Beckett Fund, helped Jose Merced bring his arguments to the Fifth Circuit in September 2008. The opening line of our first brief in the case was, goat sacrifice is never going to be popular in Texas. And the point there is to show that some religions are unpopular and are, are never going to be popular. They're never going to be well accepted, and that's why we have these rules that override popular will, if you will, and instead say these are certain kinds of rights that are just inherent to who we are as a country, and one of those is the right to religious liberty. Now, the leading case on this issue is the Church of Lukumi case from Hialeah, Florida, which had been decided years before, uh, and there it was very clear that the city of Hialeah, Florida just did not want this kind of religion in their town because they found it disgusting or scary or, or what have you. So a little bit of the same thing was going on in Euless. That Church of Lukumi case was Ernesto Pichardo's case, which won at the U.S. Supreme Court. And in Ernesto's case, the Supreme Court ruled that the city of Hialeah had violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause. Jose Merced claimed that the city of Euless had violated his First Amendment rights as well as his rights under the Texas RIFRA. It was quite stressful for him. He had to testify uh, in court. He had to testify in depositions. And 
he traveled to the argument in New Orleans, you know, when I argued the case to the Fifth Circuit. It was it was stressful for him. There was also some media coverage of it, so that's also stressful when somebody has to interact with the, the media about about their case. The reality is he just wanted to keep doing what he had been doing for 16 years without a problem, and he wanted to continue having his community of faith in Euless. He didn't want to have to sell his house and move to some more tolerant place, uh, but that's, so it, it was stressful. He wasn't sure if he was gonna be able to continue doing his religion. And of course there were people that were supposed to get ordained and he couldn't get them ordained because he couldn't undertake the sacrifice. On July 31st, 2009, the Fifth Circuit issued a unanimous decision in Merced's favor. Eric called Jose Merced when the ruling came down. He was very happy. He, of course, wanted to know if, if the city would keep appealing, which they did not. They, once they lost at the Fifth Circuit, they, they gave up. Uh, but he was, he was very happy because, of course, up until then, he had just had setbacks. And, of course, it was, it was a resounding win in the sense that it was a 3-0 to zero win and a complete reversal of the, the trial court. And really, the court went ahead and said we were going to win the entire case. So, you know, this is a done deal. Under Texas RIFRA, the court said this was a substantial burden on Jose Merced's religious exercise. And since he had been practicing his religion this way with no incident for 16 years, the city clearly had other ways it could promote public safety and prevent animal cruelty. And since they decided that the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act applied to uh, this case that they didn't need to go any further, they could resolve the entire case based on that, okay. that law, and that's what they did. We often emphasize at Beckett that defending religious liberty for one person strengthens religious liberty for others, including those of other faiths. We see it in practice all the time, and this case was no different. It's had an effect uh, certainly within the Fifth Circuit. So it's one of the leading religious liberty cases in that part of the country, and thus has had an effect on, for example, cases involving whether uh, prisoners can obtain kosher food in prison uh, if they're an observant Jew. There's not that many observant Jews in state prison systems, but there are some, and uh, it's been important to, for that religious minority interest. Uh, there's been other cases, for example, involving religious land use, the ability to access land or use one's land for religious purposes, uh, where they've also benefited from this precedent. RIFRA is particularly important for those of minority faiths. The main beneficiaries by far of the RIFRA laws, both in the states and at the federal level, and similar laws like the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, uh, the main beneficiaries by far have been religious minorities. A law like RIFRA does allow minority religious groups to come out of the shadows, as it were, and be a more open part of the public square in the United States. It does take some 
convincing within the group. The group has to decide often, or the individual has to decide, is this a fight I want to have, or should I just give up and go somewhere else? For Jose Merced, winning his case allowed him to continue practicing his faith. I think he was able to work through the backlog of, of ceremonies that he had not been able to do while the case was pending, and he was under the threat of prosecution. The words animal sacrifice probably don't inspire a lot of sympathy, unless it's for the animals. But that's kind of the point of this episode. Just because a religious practice is unfamiliar to us, even if it's abhorrent to us, that doesn't necessarily mean it shouldn't be allowed under the law. Ernesto said, You're not going to stop people from worshiping their God the way they believe is right. And it's not the government's job to stop people from worshiping. In fact, quite the opposite. It's the government's job to protect the people's right to that free exercise of their faith. In the end, it's not about what the religion says or requires. It's about who we are as human beings and how we respect each other's search for truth. As Seamus Hassan, Beckett's founder and my mentor says, religious liberty isn't about who God is, it's about who we are. If we really care about human dignity, which I think most Americans think is one of our main principles, we care about each individual human being and we care about you know, communities of human beings, that means that we ought to respect their most deeply held commitments. Not necessarily because we think they're right, but because we think that it's, it's important to them and therefore we have to respect it. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everything. And in fact, you can't agree with every religious proposition in this country. They all conflict with each other. So if you're really gonna res respect them, it has to be at the level of the person. Thank you to Ernesto Pichardo and Eric Rosbach for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of APM Music. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media.